Hello, one and all, and welcome back to another episode of History Spelunkers, the show where we take a deep dive into the cracks and crevices of history to find the tales of the niche and obscure for you to enjoy. I am your host, Kelvin, he, him pronouns, and joining me today is nobody, because uh, it's me from the future, and this is part two of our episode about fencing so we're gonna pick up where we left off talking about the wonderful and weird history of dueling culture and how whenever that faded out we were still left with people like me who fence in the modern day where's the sense in that well i will tell you in this second half of the episode now, without further ado, let's dive back down the rabbit hole. So yeah, back to our timeline. Uh, 1800s, this cultural opposition dueling. It begins to spread throughout the cultural ether. A lot of people were critical and for some reason like the 1850s and 60s dueling had like another uptick of becoming super popular and so people were having opinions about it. Um, Abraham Lincoln was actually almost in a duel at this time period with swords but they backed out last minute and uh, he was actually very disappointed in himself for the rest of his life. He, he, they didn't do it? No, that he almost went through with it. Um, oh, I was going to say, that was my one regret. Is that I didn't. <laughs> yeah, I didn't kill this guy. No, uh, no, it was 1842 uh, was whenever he did the duel. And, like, he was the challenged party, I guess. So Lincoln got to, like, set up the rules for the duel. And he was going to game the system, him being a long, gangly man with super long arms. He was going to, like, do it with swords so that he could just reach over over this little guy and just whack him, you know, before out of his reach, right? But, like I said, they backed out last minute, and he was upset. And on there was, like, one occasion where, uh, during the Civil War, where a soldier asked him about it. And Lincoln was like, if you want to ever be my friend, you're going to stop asking me these questions, you know? (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, because people were becoming opposed to it, there started to be, like, people, philosophers coming up with reasons to, like, justify it with some sort of ideology or philosophy, I guess. One person said, um, as long as nations are able to duel each other in the form of war, individuals should be able to duel one another, you know? Um, Fair point. Right? But by the 1860s, you really start to see dueling fade away. And... I think a major part of this was 
a lot of what dueling culture had become by that point was just going through the motions of this ritual that's been established. So, like, you're using pistols, you show up at the place, and you just shoot your pistols up into the sky, not even attempting to shoot at the other person, because the mere fact that you're willing to risk your life, whether or not it was actually at risk, um, was enough to satisfy the honor. Or, like, if you're doing it with swords, you just go there and clang blades real quick and then you go off and have a picnic you know <laughs> it the, the danger is gone and yeah. i think a lot of like these really combative aggressive energies start getting funneled um especially in the english-speaking world to the rise in popularity of team sports and athletics so like 1863 soccer becomes a thing 1871 rugby becomes a thing 1876 baseball 1869 american football you know all these other things start popping up that people can better spend their time on so like i think the last duel in the u.s is usually recorded as being in 1876 but um, they didn't go away entirely, especially in Europe, especially in France and Italy and Germany. Duels persist because they love to duel. And you see this resurgence in um, like this nationalism for all these three, for those three nations, France, Germany and Italy. And as part of this nationalism, the history of dueling gets wrapped up into it. And so it kind of becomes patriotic to be in a duel, I guess. And so like you see hundreds of them take place and the statistics just like go rampant. It, I mean, it's to the point where like the Italian military had to do a report where they broke down the statistics of dueling amongst its servicemen over the years. You know, and it's hundreds of duels. Wow. Germany was weird because their unique form of patriotic fencing and dueling, it's just very unique. It's called Mensur, and it became very popular in the 1880s amongst university-aged men and uh you start to see fraternities pop up at universities that were exclusively dueling clubs for the purposes of practicing mensur and what makes it difficult what makes it different from a typical duel is that most duels your object is to injure your opponent in mensur while that is kind of the case the main object uh was to be injured so like the well not to be injured but to take an injury i guess uh so like you have your two duelists they will stand apart from each other they wear this protective gear 
that doesn't really cover up a lot of the face and you use these really big swords and the whole thing is you swing at each other and try not to flinch (laughs) because you just gotta be a man i guess is the whole thing (laughs) and the bout ends whenever you get a giant cut across your face and uh the women at the time found these scars super attractive like humna humna a wooga wooga this man <laughs> has half of a heath ledger joker scar on his face and that is the sexiest thing i have ever seen and so yeah that's just a thing that happened and so you'd have all these kids getting scars and then purposefully not letting their wounds heal correctly just so that way they would have a really gnarly flesh wound. And it was even to the point of like this social phenomena in Germany where some men who were too afraid to duel in Mensur would like cut their own faces with a straight razor in order to give themselves a scar, but not have to go through the ordeal of earning it in a duel. Yeah. So they'll cut their own face, but they won't let someone else cut it in a duel? Right, yeah. It's it's a strange thing. Well, Jamie, no, it's hot, don't you know? <laughs> so hot. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, so yeah, that's just a thing that happened. I'm going to send y'all a picture in the group chat of what one of these scars kind of looks like yeah i was kind of curious on that oh nice yeah yeah and i'll i'll leave it in the show notes for our listeners but yeah no this guy has the biggest butt chin i have ever (laughs) yeah that that's i know that's totally irrelevant but it looks perfectly like a butt yeah that is not know that that's not another scar right jamie Anyways, that was a sidebar. Um, (laughs) Duels, they had an uptick in Europe, 1880s. But by 1900, culturally, they are fading. You know, World War I is the last war in which European powers, like, really used swords in any major way with their cavalry. And... After you no longer use these weapons for war, it doesn't really make sense to carry around in peacetime, except for like strictly ceremonial circumstances. And so, yeah, by 1920, you really got to struggle to find like a duel happening out in the open. Um, that's not like a novelty or anything. That being said, the last duel in France, the last recorded duel, was 1967. So, it happens every now and then, I guess, but not really. So, since dueling culture is on its way out, why do people need to practice playing with swords anymore? How was I able to learn fencing if I'm not strapped at all times ready to kill someone in the streets because they called me a weird name the answer is basically the olympics the olympic movement was happening 
And we've mentioned Olympics in earlier episodes. So the Olympic movement, you know, they're trying to revive this tradition of the ancient Greek Olympics in the spirit of international camaraderie and healthy competition, whatever. 1896 is the first modern Olympics in Athens, Greece. And fencing was one of those sports included in the competition. And actually, fencing has been in every single modern Olympics. It's one of only five events that has been in every Olympics. Wow. And uh, specifically saber fencing. Um, Men's foil fencing missed out one year in 1908 for some reason. But otherwise, it's been in all of them. And uh, in 1913, the FIE, which is, think FIFA, but for fencing, it's the international rules governing body that governs uh, sport fencing. It was created and the sport of fencing that had become developed as people were training for participating in duels and then the practice you know, people coming up with techniques and that becomes a sport in and of itself. That's how we trace it down today. And so in the Olympics, you have, of course, the straight fencing events, but then you also have the modern pentathlon, which includes a fencing portion. And it's through the Olympic movement's promotion of the sport that it was able to survive the fall of dueling and other, you know, just it being affected by popularity, a major which was World War II, which we'll get to in a second. But um, another tangent fun fact, pistol dueling also almost became a sport. In 1908, it was a demonstration sport at the Olympics in London. So, meaning that there were no medals, but it was still held. And um, so, basically, how sport pistol dueling works is uh, paintball and BBs did not exist yet. So, they were taking like actual guns and loading them up with wax bullets. And then they had, you know, protected gear on, but then they would just fire at each other and see who got hit. Which is just a very strange thing to think about. You know, yeah, I wonder sounds very dangerous. Wonder why it didn't catch on. Um <laughs> You mean you wouldn't go do that, Kelvin? I mean Probably not, but I guess, you know. It might only be, you know, with them letting every sport into the Olympics now, you know, we got like skateboarding and rock climbing and like break dancing, I think is going to be a sport eventually. I don't know, but like break dancing, it might be like a demonstration event or something, but like, mm. um, oh. but you know, like it's maybe only a matter of time till we get Olympic paintball or Olympic airsoft, <laughs> you know? so um but uh tangent anyways i digress 
Uh, I had said World War II was a major hiccup in popularity, and uh, that's because of a thing called fascists. Remember me saying the stuff about the romanticization of dueling in Germany and Italy was part of their whole patriotic nationalism thing? <clears throat> well, uh, you know, if you take nationalism and patriotism and ratchet it up and add some racism in there, uh, you get fascists. And uh, fascists apparently loved to fence. So you got a lot of people like Mussolini, uh, Oswald Mosley, Goebbels, you know, all these horrible people who were very big into fencing. And so after the war ends, in these nations, um, you see fencing kind of get banned for a couple years just because the organizations were so infused with fascists as like organizing groups of them and so just to totally dismantle any hopes of fascists coming back to power or back to social prominence after the war they kept fencing on the down low for a number of years mm -hmm. um a very similar thing happened to in Japan with kendo, which is like their version of fencing for very similar reasons because the fascists ruined it. So anyways, let's get on to the fun stuff. That's the broad history of fencing up to the modern day. So y'all said you'll see me go to practice, but y'all know how fencing works. <laughs> The sport of fencing. Really? I know there's a couple different types, and I couldn't tell you the names or exactly the differences. Right, so I have thrown a couple words around earlier. Uh, people might have caught them. But yeah, there are three different types of weapons. That's good. There's the epee, foil, and saber. And epee is what I did. It's a blade, triangular in shape. You get a point by touching your blade into any part of your opponent's body. Uh, the foil, it's a square blade, and you can only get points off of stabbing your opponent's chest. And then the saber is the only weapon where you can get a point by using the entire length of the blade to, like, slash at the other person. That's the three different types of weapons. But you, the basic gist is in a fencing bout, is what they're called, uh, you stand on a strip, or the fancy French word is a piste, and you can go forwards and backwards, and the first person to get to five or 15 points wins, depending on what part of the competition you're in. And so that's the basic gist. Um, I did Epe, which is the simplest of them in terms of rules, because for foil and saber, there's this very strange thing called right-of-way, which is a whole set of complicated rules that basically establish who 
is allowed to attack at a certain time, depending on how you've swung your blades at each other. Um, basically, it just means that they cannot score points at the same time. If both of you hit each other at the same time in foil and saber, only one person gets a point. Epe doesn't have that. We can both get points. We can both win, you know. We both hit each other at the same time. So that's why it's better than all other types of fencing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, modern safety gear that you wear, which is important. Because you got uh, layers of canvas that, uh, or it's canvas-like material to protect your skin from being whacked by a piece of metal. And you got a mesh wire mask to protect your eyes from being poked out. All in all, fencing is pretty safe, all things considered. I mean, the sport was originally designed to kill people, right? So uh, it's a good thing that people aren't killed most of the time nowadays. Since the 80s, we've managed to come up with like better clothing technology to keep people from getting hurt as much um, or dying in competition. That used to be a thing. But really, the only safety hazard outside of it, like normal sports injuries of sprained ankles and whatnot, is if your blade breaks in the middle of a bout because... Fencing swords are blunted. They're not sharp. In fact, Epe has a literal button on the end that pushes down whenever you stab someone. And so if you break your blade, you now have a jagged piece of metal. And the way these blades are built is that they're super flexible. So if they're going to break, they're going to break whenever you've bent the piece of metal very severely so it breaks and you now have like a spring-loaded jagged piece of metal that's coming towards you um which is not fun historically that's how you would get people killed is you break a blade and uh they end up because through the motion of the bout they end up getting stabbed under the mask or in the armpit um But like I said, since the 80s, that's not really been an issue. I mean, people can still get hurt, but very safe. Um, A major development that happened that has changed fencing from like early 1900s to the modern game, like a really major change, was uh, electricity. No, we do not have taser swords yet. (laughs) But uh, we have electronic score systems. So, you know, in duels, you fight until someone bleeds or dies. Very simple. And you only have to count up to one touch. Very simple, again. But in sport fencing, you can go up to like 15 or... 45 if you're doing a team bout so you got to keep track of a lot of hits and you got to count what is and what isn't to hit and uh you know in a lot of cases 
we would just have a bunch of eyes looking at you with a bunch of judges. But, you know, there's better ways. And, of course, you have honor being a big part of the history, as we've established. You know, you have the honor system of if you get hit, you fess up that you got hit. But uh, once competition becomes a factor, honor has a tendency to not necessarily be enough to satisfy. And cheating becomes a thing. So they tried to come up with different ways to combat cheating. Um, So some of their solutions were like, we'll cover the tips of our blades in chalk. And since we're wearing white canvas, if you get touched, it'll leave a mark. Or uh, I think like the Russians even invented like a special ink that would like evaporate after a couple seconds so that way you could see the touch, but then you wouldn't have to worry about cleaning chalk off of you. But, you know, all these systems were a lot messy. Some were even like, oh, let's just put like a Looney Tunes like suction cup on the tips of our blades so that it literally sticks to a person. <laughs> but all much more difficult than it sounds. Electricity was our saving grace. Epe was the first weapon to be electrified for competition at the 1936 Olympics. Um, Like I said, there's a button on the tip of their blade. Our swords get plugged into a wire. And that wire is plugged into a box that lights up whenever the button gets pressed. Ta-da! Epe was the first. It's because it's simplest. Because foil and saber, like I said, have those right-of-way rules and so they had to develop special gear for them to factor in those rules so those are called lames, and uh, they're basically just like normal fencing gear except it has wires or metal mesh woven through the canvas and Whenever the blade touches the person, it completes a circuit, which makes the light light up, showing that they had an accurate touch. And so foil was electrified in 1956. Saber, it took until 1988 to electrify the saber. So, and uh, the technology is so good now that scoring systems can tell different hits apart if they happen within one twenty-fifth of a second of each other. So it's often said that the tip of a fencing blade is the second fastest thing at the Olympics behind the bullet of the gun. Wow. So... Any questions? I'm kind of going through this very fast. <laughs> we don't have any questions. Yeah, I guess I just always assumed it was, like you said, with uh, the one technique that it was pretty much just completing a circuit. And that's what I thought all three of them were. I just never considered that. Obviously, there's different technologies for each one. That's very interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, not only does it change the technology... 
it changes the way people fence, namely in terms of speed. Like I said, because this technology can tell hits apart within one twenty-fifth of a second of each other. And so as the technology gets faster and telling these hits apart, you have to get quicker and quicker as a fencer. And so you no longer have to worry about your technique looking as good as long as your blade hits the other person and makes the light go off. And uh, like, especially with Epe where you have this super large target area, you no longer have to really worry about trying to hit them on their chest so that way the judge can see you. Um, you can hit them on their toes. You can flick your blade uh, around their back and hit them on the other side of their body. Real crazy stuff. And uh, part of that speed is what makes it a little less spectator friendly, which is unfortunate um but uh yeah there's some real fun things you can do with a fencing blade um uh, my coach it, it it's called flicking it whenever you get your blade to basically bend back to where it's pointing at you because you've whipped it so hard and uh yeah he would flick us like on the small of our back whenever we would like run we would be fencing each other and yeah he would hit us on our back like on our spine and it is one of the worst things in the world to feel and <laughs> <laughs> just makes you flinch so hard but uh but yeah and then the last main topic of this long episode is women because of course dueling is for men don't you know jamie and i guess we can't get into dueling now no no uh but uh actually there were women who were known to have fought in duels in the yonder years a famous example being another french person in the 1670s uh her name was julie De Obni, also known as Lamapin. Uh, highly recommend... I'm not going to go too deep into her, um, but highly recommend the listeners to check her out because she just has a very wild story of being a super successful fencer. And uh, yeah, it just very cool woman but yeah fencing was actually one of the earliest sports that women were able to compete in it in in a similar capacity to men but the early days you know they were still uh under the usual constraints about women in sports at the time mainly that it was Sports, participating in sports and athleticism was antithetical to femininity because the patriarchy or whatever. Um, but also, we, you know, who knows what would happen to 
women, if we put them in fencing or allow them to do fencing, you know, they, they might not be able to have babies and think of the children, you know, cause fencing stops men from being able to have babies. I, I don't know. But anyways, they were able to fence relatively early in the grand scheme of things. And, uh, it was, you know, seen as, uh, because it's not a team sport for the most part, it was more readily able for them to access, I guess. Um, and after the Olympics came around, women were able to, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Women were, whenever the Olympics came into full force, women were able to participate at the Olympic level in fencing pretty soon and find great success in it. A famous woman fencer from the early period of Olympic fencing was Helene Mayer, who was a multi-U.S. women's champion and a world champion, she uh, was actually German, um, but she lived in the United States for a few years because she was Jewish and 1930s Germany was not a great place to be Jewish. But strange turn of events, she actually competed in the Berlin Olympics for Nazi Germany. Uh, basically, uh, part of it I mean, there's a lot of things going on with that. Um, part of it was that a lot of international pressure was on Nazi Germany to allow her to compete on the German team. And so Germany let her compete basically as a token Jewish person just to be, throw off some of their criticism about hating Jews. It's like, oh, we can't hate Jewish people. We have a Jewish person on our Olympic team, sort of thing. But also, uh, she thought that she might have had to participate in order to protect her family that was still in Germany, sort of deal. So it's a very complicated and interesting circumstance um but yeah also recommend looking into her but even though there was this early progressive nature in the sport of fencing there was still some delay in achieving true equality between the sexes in all aspects of fencing so like i said even though fencing uh in some form, has been at every modern Olympiad. Uh, 1924, women's individual foil was introduced. Epe was the next sport to be open to women. You want to guess when that was? I'm going to say the 60s. Just to be different than Ryan, I'm going to say the 70s. 1996. Dang! Well. 
What the heck? Saber fencing did not have women until you want to guess. Oh god, like 06. I don't even know if it's in. 2004. Okay, well, you know, I was on the winter side, okay. Yeah, it, yeah it's uh, kind of ridiculous that it took them so long. But to defend to the FIE for a little bit, you know, and the Olympic Committee, the FIE had women's saber events in their world championships since 1999, um, and they had been pushing for a women's saber events at the Olympics since that point. But the Olympics was against adding both women's individual and team saber events um, because they only wanted there to be 10 medal events available for fencing. And if you had women's single and women's team saber, you would have 12 medal events. And for some reason, that was the hill they chose to die on. And to this day, they will not increase the number of medal events available. So basically, how it works now is that in order to allow competition of all of these events, men's, women's, and all three blades, and in team events, they have all of the single events for men's and women's and for all three weapons. Um, They have those every Olympics. And then the team events for the remaining medals, they rotate out. So... Every Olympics, you're going to miss out on a Team Saber or a Team Foil or a Team Epe. You're going to miss out on one of them because for some reason, the International Olympic Committee doesn't want to let there be a couple more medals. That's so strange. Mm-hmm. That's weird. Yeah, but... um that's all I got. Uh, a brief history of dueling and fencing. And have I convinced y'all to join the sport or uh, go out in the streets and try to challenge someone to a duel? I think that's I, the one. I definitely feel ready to go challenge someone to a duel. <laughs> uh, well, are you going to watch it at the Olympics at least, the next one? Maybe. Consider it. Depends on what time it comes on. Oh. Where even are the Olympics that are coming up and when? Uh, Paris. Yeah, that, and is it 24? 24. It's next summer? Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. And then the next one is in LA. Los Angeles, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, man. So, yeah, and I mean... Fencing, it's, you know, it's not just Olympic time stuff. It, it was even in the news recently in connection to the Ukrainian war uh, against Russia. Uh, there was some competition where 
a Ukrainian fencer and a Russian fencer came up against each other and um, the Ukrainian fencer refused to shake the Russian fencer's hand and uh, it became a whole thing because not shaking your opponent's hand at the end of the batch is uh, disqualifying because the whole honor thing, so... Mm. yeah that was a whole thing on the news i remember a couple months ago but um yeah if y'all don't have any questions or comments i'll end it here thanks for listening i hope you guys enjoyed i know it was a passion project of mine this one (laughs) um so forgive me if it was just me nerding out over some shit, but uh, I hope y'all enjoyed, and I hope the listeners enjoyed too. Uh, if you want to dig a bit deeper, I have you know stuff down in the show notes for all of you, and uh, a lot of today's episode came out of the book By the Sword by Richard Cohen. Yeah, if you thought that this episode went in-depth on the history of fencing, uh, you should see this book. Like, it is dense. So much information, all sorts of tangents on different stuff. It took me weeks to finish it, but um, very good source. So mm. happy to plug that. Um, our mu- instrumental music is by Mountaineer. You can find their stuff and more on upbeat.io. As always, like to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on occupied land that rightfully belongs to the Kiowa, Comanche, Tonkwa, as well as other indigenous peoples. If you have any questions, suggestions for future episodes, or you just want to say hi, you can reach out. A, you can reach out to us. At History Spelunkers, that's History, S-P-E-L-U-N-K-E-R-S, at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and thanks for coming down the rabbit hole with us. Till next time, bye-bye!